Nothing. Nothing but. Nothing but net. Net, net, net. Welcome to Nothing But Net, the podcast for triple net commercial real estate investing. Before we get into the meat of today's show, let's recap on why there's so much interest and buzz around net, net, net properties. Triple net properties are commercial real estate investments where the tenants, usually brand name corporations, pay you rent every month. Can you say mailbox money? In addition, they pay the real estate taxes, insurance, and maintenance for the property. No toilets, termites, or taxes. What's not to like? You can remember what net, 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 or triple net stands for by using TIM, Taxes, Insurance, and Maintenance. With triple net properties, there's lower risk income and cash flow because rents are guaranteed by strong credit tenants. Preservation of wealth because rent increases and property appreciation are bulwarks against inflation and a great store of value. Tax efficiency. The government wants investment in commercial real estate, so they provide inducements through depreciation and deductions which shelter income from taxation. Tax deferral, which gives potential for infinite tax deferral with 1031 exchanges, which are very popular in the triple net space. Triple net properties are a tangible asset, and as Mark Twain once said, buy land, they ain't making any more of it. Hello and welcome back to the Nothing But Net podcast, the podcast for commercial triple net real estate investing. I'm your host, Adam Carswell, joined by my co-host, Michael Flight. And we have another treat in store for you guys today. Different backstory to this one. And we can probably go a lot of different directions with the backstory, but just know that it's coming from a nice, wholesome, organic place. And we're really looking forward to hearing from Sapphira Bakam today, who's just a really good friend of Michael and I's. And I'll let Michael paint the picture here on how we decided to bring Sep on the show, how we know him, and what we're going to be talking about today. Fantastic, Adam. Thank you very much for that. I am so happy that Sep decided to come on and help us out here because I was under a huge misunderstanding. So I should back up. I've known Sep from, I met him at a real estate guys event, and then we re-met again at Freedom Fest, and we've become fast friends. And I just love everything about this guy. He's just a class act. He's just one of the, the biggest gentlemen in the industry, and he knows a ton about single family houses. So I've been in the real estate business probably for around 35 years. And I was out walking my dog a month or two ago. And I'm like, I should write an article on how net lease properties are single family house rentals. So I called Sep up and said, hey, what about this? He goes, no, they're completely different. So he completely disabused me because I figured it's, oh, there's one tenant and the tenant pays all the expenses and all the rest of that. So we are going to get into a treat as to how single family houses are different from single tenant net lease properties. And so that's why I decided to bring Sep on, because this is going to be educational for me as well, because this guy has done it all, seen it all, is all over the country and an expert in his field. Is there a timeline here? How long we've known Sep? I probably met Sep in around 2018. And I probably see at least, uh, well, aside from COVID, we probably see each other at least six or you know, seven times a year. We've 
been on the cruise together. Just we go to a lot of real estate guys events and we are, Sep is more fortunate than I am because Sep is really good friends with Robert and Russell. And I happen to, to consider them friends and they've just been fantastic to me. And I can't tell you how great that group of friends that hang around the real estate guys are. Both Robert and Russell are just real genuine people, real interested in giving true education. And I can't tell you that I've ever met somebody that I really didn't like at any of the events. It's just a, a great group of people. Everybody's interested. They're doing all kinds of different things, but they're entrepreneurial. They're looking for how to serve other people and how to create value for other people. And I've just, when they talk about your, when you talk about your network and your network is your net worth, that's a billion dollar network right there. So with that, I'm going to let Sep talk more because most of the time I do most of the talking and, and Sep is quiet. <laughs> Thank so. you guys. A pleasure to be here. Thank you for having me on your show. Yeah, Sep, if you, I guess if you could provide us with some context as well, walk us through your journey. I know you're in, as Michael mentioned, you're in the single family home space, which you know, our listener base, I think a lot of them are either in transition or curious about why net lease. And so they're going to be very familiar with the space that you're working in. And I know also what I find interesting in the single family home space is it does seem once people start to get that multifamily bug, they go, oh, I never want to touch single family again. But then there's guys like you, they're like, actually, look, this actually works if you know what you're doing. So I know I just threw a lot out there, but take it however direction, you, whichever direction you want to go. Thank you, Adam. Yeah, that's good. So I'm actually one of the ones who start out with multifamily and then and then actually branched off to single family. And I totally agree. I think majority of the single family investors I know, they get fed up with single family. They look at it as it's not scalable and that the only way to get more cash flow and to grow is getting into multifamily or other commercial assets. And for a lot of investors, I think that's definitely a good path forward, but there is a way to systematize and treat single family like a commercial asset class. And I think one thing that the gurus often mislead a lot of the single family investors is they compare a hundred unit apartment complex to one single family house. And it's not an apples to apples comparison. A fair comparison would be a hundred unit apartment complex to 100 houses. Uh, and even taking a step further, instead of self-managing a hundred houses, and instead of actually going and trying to collect the rent from all of those, you manage it like an apartment complex. So you hire a property management company, you have a leasing team, you have construction teams, and you treat it like a business instead of just treating it like it's just a rental property or, oh, it's close by and I can do it myself. And yeah, so it was- I need to interrupt you right there because that sure. is like the golden pearl of wisdom there. And this is with everything in real estate, you have to treat it like a business. And what I figured out was I could do one of this or I could do a few of these, but if I'm ever going to scale, I need to have a team and treat it like a business. So I'm sorry to interrupt you, Seth, but that was just perfect. Thank you. Yeah. And I, th I think that was, yeah, I can't stress the importance of that. And that's just through learning it the hard way is when I treated real estate just as the property, thinking that it's all about the property. And there's another investor that had once said that he would rather be in, be in a B market with an A team than be in an A market with a B team. Because if you have an all-star team, then you're going to be at the top as far as on the occupancy on for that market, as far as the tenants wanting to move into and just for operations wise. So I think there's definitely a lot of advantages in, in focusing on the team first. But just as far as going a little bit further back, so the, the kind of the reason why I switched asset classes is I've been doing, I was doing multifamily since 2010, smaller fourplexes, then got into smaller from smaller to like mid-sized apartment buildings to 50 unit apartment complex 58 units sorry and it started getting challenging to find deal flows so this was back in 
2014, 2015, and it was just like an entire year of getting spoiled from the 2010 prices right after the crash. So I had, I was in masterminds. I was in the real estate guys' masterminds and had some friends that they started off with a single family and then they decided to move to Atlanta and uh, do it themselves. And they were having a lot of success with it and just buying up one or two houses a week. And then they assembled a portfolio, but it was primarily in that market. And I looked at it, I was like, why well, I pull my hair out for chasing these multifamily deals at lower cap rates when there's an opportunity on the single family side. And, and they started talking about how the REITs and the hedge funds were starting to get into the space and there's more commercial financing available and was becoming more like a commercial asset class. It wasn't just like competing with mom and pop homeowners. So I, I thought that was interesting and looking at more of approach of instead of doing it where I have to be local, like how do we assemble the teams in the markets so we can be market agnostic and invest where the numbers make sense. We need to stop because there's so much there to digest. So you absolutely timed it perfectly because there was a, even now, I don't think a lot of people understand that not only REITs, but at the time, Blackstone was getting into single family portfolios and there was some large institutional money going into it. And you were right there in you know, the beginning of it, when it became, it's not quite an institutional asset class, but I, I think within probably two or three years, if these portfolios get big enough, it, it is going to become an institutional class that uh, you'll see insurance companies and you'll see pension funds. And you can see a little bit of allocation from those institutional investors now through REITs, but I think right. they'll you know, start doing direct investment too. Yeah. And e even uh, to your point, just like the liquidity in this asset class now compared to three years ago, five years ago, it's, there's a lot more options available. And, and I think just a lot of that is just a lot of the multifamily players coming into the space, a lot of the multifamily vendors coming into the space, and that's helping. I'm not a big fan of Wall Street or the typical mutual funds, but they really did pave the way for this asset class because prior to 2008, it was primarily you're limited to 10 homes on a Fannie or Freddie type financing, right? So that's the maximum right. number of loans you can get through the, the government agencies. And then after that, you have to go to a local bank. And if you're out of state, especially if you're like me, if you live in California, as soon as you say you're from California, it's an automatic no. Because uh, the first thing that comes to their mind is speculator, 2008, amateur investor. And it's just, they don't want to take high risks and, and repeat the same mistakes as before. So fast forward, it's it's not, the options are definitely wider and, and that helps as far as just having more op, uh, access to opportunities. And so this is why we decided to have you on. So my understanding, because we, I can't remember it was 2008 or 2010, but we were doing not only the retail stuff and we were also doing, we had done before that a few condo conversions and things on the side and myself and another partner who's a local residential real estate broker. So when the crash happened, we put together a company called Truefield Realty Advisors and we were doing workouts. So we did workouts on a few broken condo projects. And some of the workouts that we were doing were portfolios. Luckily, you got to, I think we've shared this on the show before, but by workout, you guys were doing what, 500 push-ups a day or what? <laughs> I apologize. So a, a workout in institutional language, a, a bank forecloses on properties, and then they bring in somebody that can prepare the properties to sell but also to add a little value so that the properties just aren't sold at a distressed price. 
So we came in and we did certain things. A number of these portfolios, they were leased. And some of them were leased, what I thought was pretty close to triple net because the tenant was supposed to be paying the real estate taxes. The tenant was supposed to be maintaining the house. And it was a little bit more hands-off. As Seth will explain later on, that's probably why the portfolio went into foreclosure. When I was thinking about trying to write an article, trying to explain what a net lease property is to people that aren't familiar with commercial real estate. And it's the closest thing I could say is it's like owning a single home with a single tenant in there. And instead of the tenant being somebody that you run a FICO score on or something like that, you're relying on the assets and the value and the credit of a corporation. So you need to like look into the, to the corporation and you need to know a little bit more about their business versus with the residential tenant. I don't know. So that's why we're going to get into, Seth, explain to us how you do your management and how you rent your uh, single family homes out. I, I just want to say real quick too, because I know one of the one of the coolest things I think that we've uncovered about triple net investing is you don't have to normally don't have to worry about things like the roof or the the AC, which I'm sure, uh, again, going to what you just asked, Sep, I'm sure that comes up in managing the properties. It does. Yeah. So even like the hedge funds that are investing in the space in like the A-class houses or B-class houses, I think just about most of them, I can't speak for every single one of them, but I haven't heard of a single one of them do like a structure where the tenant is responsible for that because they know that if the tenant does it, it's not a big corporation. It's someone making maybe around $100,000 a year. And we'll get to that in a second too, because that's a high income. But yeah, generally the the landlord or the investor is responsible for the income and expenses. I'm not the income and expenses, sorry, the maintenance items. As far as the income though, so the REITs and the hedge funds tend to focus on the tenants that are making higher income. $100,000 a year is, is a decent salary in most markets. And in, in California, that's like along the poverty line, unfortunately. Yeah, I was just going to say that. <laughs> but in, you're, you know, you're eligible for food stamps in California. <laughs> but other states, right? Like along, like you guys talk about the Sunbelt, like those markets, that's a healthy income. And, and they just prefer not to do any of the low income housing. On the low income housing side of it though, that's, it's like the lower, just based on the experience, the lower the income goes, the harder the asset is to manage. So if, if it's a hundred thousand dollar tenant, that's, they're probably gonna take good care of the property. If it's a tenant making $40,000 a year, $30,000 a year, maybe they're on section eight. If we let them be responsible for their pairs, and we've seen other investors do this, then it's a disaster. So I'll even go a little bit further affordable housing on the like single families. So tenants making less than 30 or $40,000 a year, that's probably the hardest asset class in America to manage. Like it's the most difficult asset class. It's the opposite of these commercial triple net lease properties, just because of the amount of work that's that's involved, but it's not impossible. You have to have the right team for it. And there's good teams, good companies where they manage for the REITs, but they can also handle like the lower income communities and they have to be involved uh, in that. Like you have to have the right management to serve that tenant. You don't want to property manager that's serving Beverly Hills tenants to be serving tenants that are on section eight. It's completely different systems. It's completely different demographics. See, this is what I've been talking about over and over again. You need to know what you're doing, no matter what asset class you're in. So as I, I'm going to go back to, I've been in real estate for a long time. I don't do a whole bunch of single family stuff. And when I did do it, it was for a fee for somebody else that had foreclosed on it. And plus that was back more than 10, 15 years ago. So 
it was a long time ago and, and markets change and all the rest of it. But to what you know, Sepp is telling me is that I don't know anything about operating a single family home rental. So that if you are going to jump into a space, you should pick out what you're going to jump into and then learn as much as possible about it. Go ahead. Andy. I was also wondering, like, how do you avoid, because there's so many, I think so many of us, including myself, got into real estate through that HGTV portal. <laughs> so how do you not get sucked into basically the properties running you and you running the properties? Excellent question. And that that's literally what happened to me the first couple of years where I started investing because my the the type of tenant that I thought I would be serving was just like anyone who would rent the the property. I didn't have a philosophy. Robert and Russ, who we talked about with the real estate guys, their book Equity Happens, they talk about instead of starting with the deal, start off with your investor philosophy. Who do you want to serve? What is the what type of property or what type of investing? Are you going to be an active investor? Are you going to be passive? Do you want to be doing low-income Section 8 housing or do you want to be doing more luxury housing or maybe something that's more of like a triple net? And, uh, and then from there, assemble the team, right? Maybe find someone who's done it in that specific asset class, get the boots on the ground, and then from there, focus on the marketplace, and then last thing should be on the deal. So when I started, it was the opposite. I, I just looked for deals. And then I found myself thinking that I was investing in C-class properties. And it wasn't until after I bought the property, I had a property manager say, Sep, this is in the hood. This is not a C, this is an F. And, <laughs> and, and so I would have been going to say D, but you went right to F. <laughs> yeah, it's, there, there is such thing as worse than that. And those first two were from a turnkey provider. And the turnkey provider didn't tell me it was a D or an F. They just said it was going to be magical cash flow every month. They didn't say it was going to be an eviction farm for two years or just turning out tenants like every other month. And I need to interrupt you because there is a story I think you remember telling me that you saw your house on the news. So there's been a couple of times. <laughs> One of them, it's, it's happened on the houses and it happened on the apartment buildings when we had them before. The worst one, I was working as, a, as an electrical engineer at the time and we finally, we repositioned the property. So this is a good example following up that investor philosophy team, then the marketplace, and then the deal. We had the property, we renovated it, it from the inside and outside. We got rid of most of the tenants because there was just a lot of challenge over the years. There was prostitutes, gangs, there was literally drive-by shootings and uh, multiple drive-by shootings. The SWAT team had to come out a couple of times. So See, I try and get percentage rent from the prostitutes and gangs. That's one way to boost the NOI, right? <laughs> <laughs> the value so, add strategy. <laughs> value add, yeah. And police wouldn't go to this property unless there were two cars at the same time. So we got rid of all the tenants except one. And then that one tenant, we were in process of evicting. And when I say we got rid of all the tenants, we got rid of all the tenants that we inherited because we bought the property from the slumlord. They didn't do any type of tenant verification. They just accepted anyone with the pulse. And the problem is if you accept anyone with the pulse, you get people who just got a prison. You get people who are on parole. You get people who maybe they're not even working. They're just getting cash from, from any of those other occupations that we just described, drugs or, or prostitution and whatnot. So I'm working and I get a text message from my property manager. So I'm in California and the property's in Texas. It says, Sep, you got to go to the news website and look at the properties on the news and, and there's been a shooting. But what happened was... It was in broad daylight that one tenant that was still on the property out of the 52 units, someone walked up to their door, knocked on the door, tenant opens it, and the suspect pulls out a gun and shoots him in the head. So kills him on the spot, and this is in broad daylight. So the, this is right after the leasing agent left the property. The tenants that are there, everyone's you know in panic. Police come there, and there's news cameras and everything, and they couldn't find the suspect. So I called well, the, the good news manager. is you don't have to evict him. 
Right. <laughs> I didn't <laughs> we, know if we were going to go there. But <laughs> <laughs> we would have wanted it to go another way, but but un- unfortunately, it was what we learned was it was drug related. So the the tenant was an addict, and yeah, there was something there was something going on over there. I here I am. I'm trying to juggle this with with my job. And it was just like a falling knife, right? So the property manager, I thought that they had experience in this. I was talking to the district manager. I was talking to the owner of the management company. I said, are you guys going to go to the property? They're like, Sep, we can't go there because if we go right now, the media and the you know tenants are just going to look for someone to blame. I'm like, you guys got to go there and make sure everyone's okay or, or we're going to find another company. And they, they said, please consider us a 30-day notice. So I thought, okay, it'll be pretty easy to find another management company, but I'll get to that afterwards. So uh, it, it gets worse, unfortunately. The property manager won't go to the property. There's a killer that's still loose in the neighborhood somewhere, and the tenants are just panicking. Just right after that happened, we had about five or 10 tenants move out. And then uh, later that night, we had a security guard, basically hired a security guard to go to the property, and Telemundo was there, and they're filming on the property. And there's literally a live newscast, and I can show the video to you guys next time I guys see you. And the reporters are there on the news and a guy walks right behind the reporter and pauses. And then the reporter, you just look like he has, he looks like he saw a ghost and he turns over and there's just gunshots starting to shoot at the, the reporter. So the suspect basically came back to the property and tries killing the news crew. And then luckily we had the security guard because the security guard and him had a gun exchange. And the tenants, you just see, they're still recording it. The tenants are just trying to get away from the bullets. It's a disaster. This is Security the uh, real estate guy's Halloween horror story on steroids. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> this was actually the very first one I did did for them like five years ago. So this, this is a little bit more detail. What happened was that the security guard, and I'm sorry, this is, I should have given them the disclaimer. It's graphic. So you, know, you could skip the next minute. Well, actually, uh, we should probably just get back into... Hey, we did talk I, about stories. Yeah. <laughs> we want to I, 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 I did know, sidetrack, yeah. yeah. Because uh, what the bottom line is that uh, you need to know a lot about what your market is, a lot about where the properties are, and a lot about actually who you want to serve and right. if you're capable of serving in certain tenants. Do you think part of the challenge, Sep, also was you were, you were still working a full-time W-2 at the time, it sounds like, and to take on something like that, does it require going all in? I think it does. It, it does. But also, also I, even more so is just having the right team. The solution was finding a better property management company that knew that asset class and that could actually improve it. So we did get a new management company afterwards. They completely turned it around. Crime was decreased 95%. It was actually in a good area. It was just the worst property in that community. But having the right team completely turned it around. And That's, um, that's fantastic. So that yeah. is your dramatic turnaround story right there. Yeah. And so the funny thing afterwards is like, okay, I, I, this took years off of my life repositioning this asset. So like, okay, I'm going to go do something easy afterwards. Uh, just go buy <laughs> some flips in, in Phoenix. Bought two duplexes in Phoenix. And it, those were the, like the least profitable deals I ever did. And, and they were pretty boring because all we did is we took something that was already in a B area and we made it into like a B plus. And it just didn't, it wasn't really what excited me for my investment philosophy. So then that's when we made the pivot to go into single family portfolios on, on the lower income stuff, because that's where the experience is. And that's where we get more enjoyment is seeing the seeing the neighborhoods improve and seeing the, the properties uh, actually provide low income housing and have it be clean, safe and affordable to the demographic. What are some of the markets that you really like right now for uh, single family home? We're heavily involved right now in Kansas City, Jacksonville, Florida, and Richmond, Virginia. But 
Richmond's not so much in that Sun Belt, but ideally in the South and the Midwest for just for the same reasons that, that you guys like those areas too, right? It's business friendly for, especially for what we want to do. We want the government to be on our side. If we tried to do what we do in California, you, we couldn't evict a tenant for six months to a year, even if they're selling drugs out of the property or if they're up to no or, good. Or where I live, Cook County, the sheriff every once in a while just decides that he's going to do an eviction moratorium. <laughs> so he, he doesn't actually, you can actually go through, and we had this happen during the 2008 financial crisis and then COVID, and, it, and he's still not doing evictions because even if you get the eviction, he just decides that he doesn't need to enforce those because, you know. He's never been a landlord before is what you're saying. <laughs> <laughs> So I, I I really at some point wanted to put up a tent city on his front lawn and say, well, you can't do eviction. <laughs> <laughs> kind of taste of his own medicine. So, so that's the, that's a key thing. So how did you decide to go into portfolios and what attracted you to them and how do you evaluate a, a portfolio? Though? So let's start on the evaluation. So if you have a portfolio of houses, ideally it would be nice if we can get a commercial appraisal, have it have the valuation be based on the net operating income, the profitability of the portfolio. Unfortunately, this asset class is not there yet. So everything is on residential appraisals. So if there's a hundred houses, every single one of those houses have to have their own appraisal on there. The, the reason why I think one of the attractive, one of the main attractive reasons for wanting to get into this was at that apartment complex I talked about, if you're in that one apartment complex and you have one bad tenant, it screws up everything. It, it makes it so that you don't, you can't attract good tenants. You, it's harder to reposition. And there's but really this only is, two I, I, no, I want, this is something you got to reiterate because all you ever hear from Grant Cardone and all these multifamily guys is Oh, you got everything under one roof. You got like one heating, air conditioning system and all the rest, which isn't true anymore anyway. But what you're saying is one tenant can ruin an entire apartment building. And that's literally what had happened to us. You have, we had, there's, there was two roofs on that apartment complex. And if you have a roof leak, you got to replace it all, right? Or if you have the one water main, there was another investor I knew who had an apartment complex, hundred plus units. And the one water line had to be replaced and then all the water in the entire community is out. So there's pros and cons. It's nice from an efficiency standpoint, you can have your team on site to manage it, but it, it is like having all the eggs in one basket. What I also just from the financing perspective is you, there's the two extra strategies, right? You can sell the apartment complex or you can refinance it. And what I saw the other investors that were into SFR portfolios, they had more exit strategies. They can sell off one house, they could sell off a package, they could refinance a couple or refinance a package. And there's always like the, the whole vacancy issue, right? Like if you can, if you incentivize the tenants, then you can keep the occupancies pretty high to give them a choice of upgrades, et cetera. So I felt like it was a way for us to be able to serve the demographic without having to compete on the low cap multifamily deals. That is cool. And so what was the first that they size of your first portfolio how many buildings or how many houses it was pretty small it was i think a four house portfolio in phoenix and it was all just from one seller that was selling it that's is not this... that's not too small four houses is more than most people buy at one time <laughs> yeah are so you starting to see because to me it's, it sounds like it's still as far as the potential of approaching residential with a commercial mindset is something that a lot of the people in this, a lot of people in the sector haven't awakened to yet. 
Right. Do you feel as though like you're sitting on something that hasn't been tapped into yet, at least the way that you're approaching it with this portfolio method or what's been your experience from that? I Yeah, I do. We still see most of, take any neighborhood where we have the houses in, any of our competitors in those neighborhoods, what they're doing to their properties is they're making their properties look like basic rental properties. So laminate countertops, carpet, they're not doing like full upgrades. We tend to make them more look like they're for a homeowner. So you mentioned HDTV, like the houses look generally like they're HDTV, but then it's going to a Section 8 tenant. And that's, it, it seems like a crazy thing to do because the whole notion is the Section 8 tenant's going to damage it. But we've we found that it's actually, the house becomes more resilient by getting the carpet out and putting the LVP flooring. It becomes more resilient by having granite than having something where you leave a cup of water on there and then it, it damages the countertop or a hot plate or whatever. So like doing those things, not only does it one benefit the tenant, it also makes it so the property becomes front of line. So if the tenant, for example, if they have a section eight voucher, 800 bucks a month, they're going to choose the one with that looks like they something they want to buy versus the, the one where it's just basic, right? Like it hasn't been renovated in 30 years and it's just lower quality. It also benefits it from the appraisal standpoint, because then the appraiser is going to pull the comps from more of the, the flip properties versus the slumlord properties. And then the lenders like that because uh, I see CapEx going into the properties. So I, cool. yeah, I think, go ahead. No, I said, that's that's very cool. I didn't even think about that, that you could get a bigger appraisal and the lender gives you some credit for the CapEx. And my question is, do the tenants take care of it better because it's a little nicer? Do you think that's like a mental shift for some of them? Yeah. And, and a big part of it, uh, back to the team, is doing the rental verification from the current landlords, like just asking the current landlords, hey, would you re-rent to this tenant? What condition do they leave the house in? And if they say, no, it looks like something from, it looks like a mosh pit, then I just want this tenant out of my house. Please take them. And yeah, that's not <laughs> someone that we want to work with. Yeah. But I, I I have noticed that generally there's, even if there's low income tenants, there's most of them are pretty good in our experience. It, it's a small percentage that are like the disaster type tenants when they trash it. But I think doing the hard work up front on the property helps it just be more resilient to more difficult tenants. And that's kind of what we look for when we're looking to lease to a tenant is what kind of credit do they have? What's their you know, business outlook? Are they in an industry that is looks like it's going to be going someplace or they like Macy's, which probably won't be around in 10 years or just as an internet uh, site and, and not a department store. Getting back to the similarities and differences, I, I, I always thought that what you're saying is that it's not only doing a lot of homework up front in terms of what the neighborhood is and you know what's going to be needed, but it's also a little bit more management intensive versus when we're doing the triple net stuff, a large majority of it is doing your homework up front. Is it a good location? If the tenant does go out, is it releasable? That type of thing. And most importantly, underwriting the credits, the tenant's credit. I'm learning so much stuff here today, Seth. I really do appreciate you coming on. So. My pleasure. Yeah, you've helped me look at the single family space a little bit more of, I've just never considered it commercial and the way that you're handling it is definitely in a commercial fashion. Well, um, and you don't hear people talking about this. I do hear people talking about single family portfolios and things like that. But as Sepp said, it's more like a, a hobby or it's like a, a second job type of a thing. And it's not, I'm going to go in, I'm going to buy single family houses, I'm going to rent them out. Because I, I have heard and I've heard podcasts where 
there's people that just start with one house and keep adding to their houses. And next thing you know, after a 20 year plan or a 15 year plan, they're millionaires and they can stop working completely because they've got this, you know, constant income in same markets or different markets. And who wouldn't want that? Who wants to rely on? So you work for a larger corporation as an electrical engineer, correct? I, I used to. So I've yeah. been, been doing full-time for about six right, years. But can, who, who can rely on getting a pension from anything anymore? Oh yeah. It's rare, yeah. if any. <laughs> And where are you going to get this type of income in the stock market? You could invest in a REIT, but a REIT is going to give you, at best, you have to pick it, but the all index of REITs, it's a 4% return on your money. What? You, why don't you describe what you're getting in terms of financial benefits, in terms of tax benefits, in terms of equity buildup and all that, With even if it was one house, just give us what the benefits are. Yeah, basically all, all the benefits that you mentioned too. On the, the tax benefits, I think it's, and I'm not a CPA or, or tax attorney, so it's not oh, tax Oh, we do a disclaimer, we, we, but there are tax benefits to owning uh, real estate. And so, so, yeah, yeah. And as far as what those look like, generally, if there is the value add for the houses, if an investor is just buying a house and it's already turnkey, or if it's already been a rehabbed and all that stuff, there, there's still some tax benefits, but there's definitely more enormous tax benefits if the investor is buying something that's broken, buying something from a, a slumlord, buying something that's dilapidated or from a don't want our seller and improving it. That's depending on the strategy and their, their uh, tax advisor, their CPA, they can capitalize those expenses or there's ways where you can potentially even take a majority of that in the first year. Again, check with your tax advisor. You could still do bonus depreciation on the properties similar to the, the commercial properties. So there's a lot of those benefits, but- Just stop. So even if somebody, would you recommend somebody that's just starting out probably try a turnkey first and then do a renovation unless they had some experience with construction or what would you recommend? How I started was with a turnkey property and thinking was going to be passive. I, I'm not a big fan of turnkey because I okay. feel like, uh, and this specifically for single family, because the a, a lot of that business is just making about the property and not putting a lot of focus on the team. I think the best way would be to go, if I had to do it all over again, like leverage the experience from a syndicator or much more advanced investor, learn their systems, learn their processes, even if it's investing passively, and then do it actively on my own. Some of the most successful syndicators I've met have done it that way because there's no sense in reinventing the wheel. You can do it, but it, it's a lot of times if people think it's going to be passive, it's not as passive. So what you're saying is jump in with somebody like yourself that knows what they're doing, learn how they operate, see how they operate, and also get the benefits of investing alongside them. So you're actually making money and learning something and then decide, because some people might just decide this is way too much work for me, I'll continue to invest with Seth because he knows what he's doing. And other people say, I like this, but I wanna you know, go in a different direction. Is that kind of what you're saying? Yeah. And it doesn't even have to be with me or my company, or, but I think just even just getting familiar with if there's an asset. Yeah, but we want them to invest with the best. So <laughs> invest with Thank the you. best, invest with Seth. <laughs> Thank there you. you. <laughs> End of show right there. <laughs> yeah. Speaking so just, that, or go, oh, ahead, go ahead. Go ahead, Seth. I was just going to say, as far as, yeah, the the faster that, that an investor can get to scale, the the better. And, and just that whole philosophy, it's not about the property. And the reason why I, I'm, I have that particular opinion, because I've had other investors who have, they followed in the same exact market. And sometimes they've even used the exact same property management company. 
and completely different experiences. So it's not that that investment philosophy. That's there's a reason why that one is on top, right? Like when the house comes vacant, what do you do? Do you just do the minimum or are you actually going to follow a process to improve it? And every single component in in this business, it's the business, right? Every part of it is essential. So I think when, if an investor is just starting out and just, and maybe doesn't, doesn't know what they don't know, like as far as, well, what type of material should I use? Or just, there's a whole, there's a lot of experience with that. Then I think it, it can open it up to longer vacancies or maybe different expectation than, or the different experience than what they expected and the resting. And what are some of the other, aside from the tax benefits, what you can expect a fairly good income and it's monthly income? The, depending on what the investors are looking for, there's ways that they can invest into opportunities where say it's bridge lending and they're just the lender, or there's other opportunities where it's syndication. And generally those are based on quarterly disbursements. Yeah, there's tax benefits with it. And then when the properties appreciate, or if they appreciate, I should say, because nothing is guaranteed, then they get a piece of the upside as well. But I think the main thing also, just I'm a big Robert Kiyosaki fan and Kiyosaki is a big fan of debt. It's not so much just buying everything all cash and just holding it, but having a lot of the hedge funds and the REITs in the space opens up those financing opportunities where if you buy something ugly, you fix it up, you can pull the equity out. It's, it can be part of the equity. It can be all the equity, basically that that initial investment once the, the property is value is increased. That, that's as far as the velocity of the capital, I think that's another benefit as well, besides the tax, the cash flow and the appreciation. And just to hit on the appreciation. So some of the you've gotten some fairly okay depreciate or appreciation in certain markets, but there's markets where you're not going to get a substantial amount of appreciation. So how have the ones that you've been are they're not quite like the rockets, like in Austin or a Miami, but you just get some nice steady appreciation. I, I, I wish that I would have gotten asked that question more often in other uh, podcasts too, because the most common question I get from investors is, what do you think about Austin? Or what do you think about San Diego and all these like markets? But I, I feel like that's, they're looking at it from the jobs, right? There's all this job growth, there's the properties are appreciating. But I look at it as if we try to do what we do in there, it wouldn't be as profitable for, for the, what we're doing as the other markets. Uh, we're not looking for like the next market to like double overnight. We're looking for like more of this, the the steady markets, right? Markets where there's blue collar jobs, where there's manufacturing, where there's actually a middle class, right? They're, they're not paying $3,000 for a studio apartment with no view, where there's that affordability we can serve. And, and just not expecting the wild appreciation, but just looking at it as, hey, if we're in a neighborhood and there's a comp over here, and, and this house with certain upgrades is worth $75,000, and we could buy something that looks almost the same for $30,000 or $20,000, then that's our baseline. So instead of looking at, we, we're assuming pretty modest appreciation, like 3%. You're forcing 4%. your appreciation and then assuming modest appreciation, at, but still, you're still getting appreciation. Like you're just given a nice big chunk of appreciation by renovating it and making it a nicer place. Exactly. And that's also a way to create uh, appreciation. Right. Based on today's value. So even if the values stay flat, then you know, that, that should still be okay within the model. Okay. Adam, did you have any other questions for Seth? All I got for him is like you said, Michael, if anyone here is interested in, in learning more or going deeper on uh, Seth's philosophy or just getting in touch with your resources or you, what's the best way to follow up and get in touch with you? Thank you, Adam. Uh, so the company website is becominvest.com and uh, the email, if you have any questions, it's info at becominvest.com. 
I'm pretty active on, on Facebook and LinkedIn. Yeah. And if there's any questions as far as like how to find a good property management company or anything else about the space, happy to help out with that. And I, right. I do want to say Seth has always led roundtables and done things. He knows how to vet property management companies. He knows how to look at a market and evaluate a market. And he knows what should be in a neighborhood and what should not be in a neighborhood. So I always learn something from Seth, which you, sometimes there's people out there that know what you're they're doing. But Seth is just one of the nicest guys and all, always willing to like, especially be patient with somebody like me. He's multi-talented too. He's willing to share his other gifts. I know his photography skills are one thing we didn't really touch on today. Yeah, I'm not going to touch on his photography skills because he never sends me the pictures that he takes. Of me, so I, don't, I don't know where they're at. It's a long time to edit, but yeah, I'll get them. I'm joking around, Seth. I just think he's he might be the guy that stole my Instagram account and put up the fake pictures. So. We did have a we did have a uh, someone created a fake Michael Flight account because Michael's becoming a celebrity now. Everyone knows him. So Liberty Fund. That's awesome. <laughs> I promise it wasn't. I'm not me. sure if it's awesome, but but thank you very much, Seth. Really appreciate you coming on. Really appreciate you sharing knowledge. And uh, even though this is outside of the triple net space. I actually thought that you could potentially rent single family houses for as a triple net deal. And you thoroughly disabused us of that idea. It's, we like it when we can add value to people. And I especially like it because I actually learned a ton just talking to you this 45 minutes. My pleasure. Is it possible to add one quick point on that? Just as far as the triple net lease? 100%. Please bonus do. session yeah. for it. Okay, so yeah. <laughs> on on and thank you guys again for having me. The the point as far as like the uh, treating the houses as a triple net, yeah, I think we covered about like on the market tenants, typical market tenants, it's hard to to do that. Letting the tenants be responsible for taxes, insurance, and maintenance. But I'd say one thing that we do that's similar to the the triple net like commercial properties is when dealing with Section Eight. The government is like that corporation, like that triple net corporation, because the government is guaranteeing the rent. If the tenant does something to the property, then the tenant is banned for life. So there's incentive for the tenant to take care of the landlord's property. And just the exchange is that we have to do the repairs whenever uh, there's something major that comes up. They do inspections. So it's similar. I'd like it to be a corporation, but well, the there, there is an area of housing where corporations will rent in the housing for different reasons and release it so that you've got a corporate guarantee there. And then I've also seen where certain either rehab homes or medical facilities will rent the, the home out as a triple net lease. And so some of those you can actually get them maybe to pay for the real estate taxes and insurance, correct? That's correct. I have some friends actually for that first example you mentioned, they're doing that where they're renting Airbnbs to the movie studios in, in Atlanta. And that's, they don't have to worry about anything. It's just like the, that, that sort of, you know, triple net tenant. And I've done business with movie studios where they've actually shot, you know, on, at some of our shopping centers. Oh, nice. And I just, the, the secret is that they just overpay for everything. <laughs> So, you know, so it's probably a good deal for them, for your, your friends. Nice. Nice. All right. Thank you again, Sep. Michael, thank you for sourcing Sep and bringing him on the show and just asking some great questions along the way, added a ton to this one. I think this episode is going to perform very well. So thank you to everyone and uh, especially you, our listeners. Thank you for joining us here on the Nothing But Net podcast, the podcast for triple net commercial real estate investing. 
I'm your host, Adam Carswell, alongside our co-host, Michael Flight. Today, we were joined by Seper Bakam. Sep, thank you one more time. Michael, you too. Thank you, guys. It was an awesome interview. Thank you once again for joining us here on Nothing But Net, the podcast for triple net commercial real estate investing. If you enjoyed what you heard today, one last friendly reminder to like, share, subscribe, or leave a review for us. It really helps a ton with the show's visibility. For the Nothing But Net team, I'm Adam Carswell. Take care. Nothing But Net. The Nothing But Net podcast is not intended to provide legal, tax counsel, or accounting advice. Adam Carswell, Michael Flight, Concordia Realty Corporation, Liberty Real Estate Fund, LLC, and their affiliates do not provide tax, legal, or accounting advice or the worthiness and promotion of any particular investment. This material has been prepared for informational purposes only and is not intended to provide and should not be relied on for tax, legal, or accounting advice. You should consult your own tax, legal, and accounting advisors before engaging in any transaction or undertaking. We highly encourage individuals and investors to seek the counsel of a qualified attorney as well as seek the counsel of a tax professional or certified public accountant to determine if there are any potential tax liabilities or consequences as a result of anything contained herein. All listeners of this podcast or video should understand that there are no guarantees of any success, outcome, or profitability of any transaction or undertaking expressed or implied and will not be liable for any financial or other losses or damages incurred as a result of any undertaking. Go to nothingbutnet.us for a complete set of disclosures. Thank you.